Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. All right, before we get to our podcast today, we want to bring you a message from one of our great sponsors. Are you a business owner? Do you need expert help with bookkeeping, payroll, virtual CFO, or analytic services so you can focus on growing that business instead of dealing with those day-to-day concerns? You need to hire Analytic. They'll take care of all that stuff while giving you insights about your company for better long-term decisions. You can find them at analytic.io. That's A-N-A-L-Y-T-I-Q.io. Or email info at analytic.io. Save five reasons sent you. And if you sign up or refer someone who does, you will receive a $200 Amazon gift card. Today's Five Reasons podcast is also brought to you by ERA Fit. Are you looking to transform your body, burn fat, build muscle, and restore your health with ERA Fit? located in Wynwood in Miami. They provide customized personal training and online coaching that matches your current level of fitness and goal to maximize your results. Visit erafit.com to see real transformations and find out why ERA Fit has over 200 five-star reviews. If you can't make it in person, ERA Fit offers online personal training. Visit erafit.com to get started today. All right, and before we get to everything here, want to let you know you should stick around to the very end of the episode, not because we're expecting it to be great, although it probably will be, but also because we got a big announcement to make about the Five Reasons Sports Network at the end of the pod. And now, on with the show. Welcome into the Five Reasons Podcast. Thank you for finding us. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. You can download us on iTunes if you have Apple, also Google Play if you have Android. Be sure to check out our entire library when you're there. And when you check out that library, you will find that we have started an anthology series here on the podcast. We started the first one with Jason Jackson, with his stories about some of the great people and and players that he's been around with the Heat since he joined in 2004. Then we did a two-part series with the voice of the Miami Heat, Eric Reed, where he covered everything from 1988 all the way up through this season, his 30 seasons. The part one covers the pre-championship years and part two covers the championship years. And one of the people that Eric Reed talked about quite a bit during that part one was Ron Rothstein. So we decided we had to get the coach on here on the pod for ourselves to, to sort of talk to him about some of the stories. And I got to before we start, Ron, I got to tell you, when we put this out on Twitter, uh, there were people who were asking us to get you to start a Twitter account. Do we have any chance of that occurring after we do this podcast? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, we, we covered that. Thanks for joining us, Ron. We'll be moving on. No, uh, just just kidding. Um, so, but uh, a lot of people wanted to, to interact with you that way. But they did send some questions uh, for us to get into 
here with you. And so we're going to try to cover sort of the scope of your career with the Heat in five parts here. And I want to start here with you, Coach, with part one. And when you were an assistant with the Detroit Pistons, and you obviously had been around some really, really good basketball during that period of time, um, championship basketball, uh, how did the process come about where you ended up being hired as the first coach in the Miami Heat? Chuck Daly came to me one day and said um, Billy Cunningham had called him and asked for five names for them to interview for the head coaching position. And Chuck told me, he said, I'm only giving you one. And if you don't hire him, you're stupid. (laughs) So then uh, the next thing I know, um, Chuck told me that Billy had called Jack McCloskey, who was the GM of the Pistons, and asked for permission to talk to me. And Jack said, okay, so I should be expecting a call from Billy. And this is why we, uh, I don't remember if this started late during the season at 87, 88, or early in the playoffs, but I started to have conversations with Billy over the phone, and then we met a couple of times, but this was all with the approval of of the Pistons. So you go all the way to the the NBA Finals with that Pistons team. I presume you stayed through that run. So when did you actually take the job, and then how difficult was it to kind of stay focused on the task at hand with the, with, with the Pistons going into a seven-game series with the Lakers? Well, that was my focus. I really didn't give it a whole lot of thought about Miami. I really didn't. We had conversations, but uh, it was all going to be left on hold until I was done. We were done with that season. And uh, they weren't going to make any decisions. They were going to wait for me, wait for me to come down and have the, the big interview and uh, meet with, with Lou Chappell, with Stu Inman. I had already met with Billy. And um, we finished, I believe, June 21st or something like that. And then I don't think I came down to Miami until maybe a week later and we talked, and then I went back to Detroit. And then um, I would say, I think my press conference was actually like July 11th or 12th or something like that after I, I, I had accepted the job. But I went back to Miami, and then we started a series of phone calls. Negotiations were going on. They were talking to my agent. All of a sudden, I had an agent. I didn't need one before then, but not, all of a sudden, I had an agent because I didn't know what I was doing. And um, things uh, progressed fairly rapidly, and then uh, we decided to take the job. When I say we, I mean my wife and I, because uh, every step of the way throughout my whole career, she's been my, by my side, and she's been my partner, and uh, very, very important person in my life. So how did expansion work? Because obviously, I think a lot of fans, you know, my age, I'm 25 years old, I wouldn't remember sort of the opening days of the franchise. So what was the expansion draft like once you actually take on the job, building out a roster, finding facilities to play at and, and all of and all that it required? What was that whole starting something from scratch like? I presume not with a ton of time in between leaving the Pistons in what, what would have been June and then the following October having to start with an entirely new team well really most of the stuff was done without me the expansion draft the college draft that was all done I had not been hired yet I mean it had to be done because you had a season coming up what I faced was when I took the job was a putting a staff together b sitting down with the front office people and deciding which free agents we wanted to go after planning for rookie free agent camp and summer league and then it was you know putting a roster together who are we going to invite to training camp after summer league? Who do we like in summer league? I came in and I hit the ground running 
my main job was to put a team together, you know, which guys do I want, which guys don't I want. And then putting the staff together and trying to decide how I wanted to play what I thought was important for an expansion team. And let me just say this, expansion at that point in time was not very expansion friendly because what they allowed teams to do, they allowed the existing teams to protect eight. And then if you drafted one guy from them, they could pull another guy back. And there aren't too many teams after you get through the first eight that have many good players. And you have guys that are serviceable and guys that, you know, can help good teams, but you didn't have guys who could carry teams or really make teams good. And the plan was to build through the draft to not take any shortcuts, to try and build a foundation that would be everlasting. And that's basically what we did. People will probably forget that. The Miami Heat was the first in modern-day expansion, the quickest to the playoffs than any other team. The Heat made it in the fourth year. Unfortunately, I wasn't there, but I, I like to think I laid the groundwork in the first three years. And um, in the third year, see, what we did each year is we got younger. From year one to year two, we got younger. From year two to year three, we got younger. Because what we did was we got rid of the veteran guys who were available, who really were marginal players to begin with, and went with young guys. So by year three, we were playing 10 guys every night. And the 10 guys consisted of three third-year players, Ronnie Cycli, Grant Long, and Kevin Edwards, three second-year players, Glenn Rice, Sherman Douglas, and, oh boy, I'm missing somebody. Right, uh, Sherman Douglas and Terry Davis and four rookies, Keith Askins, Bimbo Coles, Alec Kessler, and Willie Burton. That was our 10. And we won 24. I mean, we won 15 the first year, 18 the second year. And, you know, we kept, we got a little bit better each year. We won 24 the third year. And um, I like to tell people if we could have made foul shots, we might have won 30 or 32. I might have kept my job. I might have been around for a long time. But, you know, you never know how that's going to go. But that, that was basically what happened in the first three years. And then year four, big jump. There was another trade made. Sherman Douglas was sent to Boston for Brian Shaw. And then there was another key draft pick, Steve Smith. So you added Brian Shaw and Steve Smith to that mix of basically the group that won 24 the year before. And they jumped to 38, and they made the playoffs. And that was the quickest of all the expansion teams. No one else did it in four years. I want to take you back to that first season a little bit because we're definitely going to touch on kind of that transition and the development of some of those players. When you first got to and you'd seen kind of what you'd put together that first year and you mentioned kind of the mix of, of veterans and, and rookies. I mean, one of the other things was, you know, just because you guys were an expansion team, it's not like they gave you and Charlotte the top two picks in the draft. They gave you. From what I recall here, I guess it would have been the ninth, the eighth and ninth picks. Charlotte took Rex Chapman and the Heat took Cycli. But actually, Danny Manning was the first pick of that draft and and Rick Smith's was second. So you you guys didn't have a shot at either of those two players. But you also took the team, as you mentioned before, you got there, took Kevin Edwards late in the first round. So like you said, you had a mix that first year of really young players like Edwards, like Sylvester Gray, Cycli. Six rooks. Six rookies. And then you had some, as you mentioned, some veteran guys like a Pat Cummings. And then I guess Rory Sparrow came in late, right? So he was. Rory was a free agent. 
Okay. I was begging them the whole preseason, sign Rory, sign Rory, sign Rory. <laughs> and they they didn't want to do it at first. And then I think we signed Rory the day before the season opened. And, you know, there were other things going on. That expansion draft was pretty wild because I know they said to some teams, listen, we won't take so-and-so. Give us a second-round pick. So if it was a veteran guy who you know that team valued some, you'd sort of bribe them and you go, you know, all right, we won't take so-and-so. Give us a second-round pick. And things like that went on. I mean, we got a second-round pick from the Lakers not to take Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> Something like that. That would have been a good way to start the franchise. So, so you, you end up with... with well, he was, he was done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, he was finished at that point. Um, and if so, he had gone to the expansion team, people in L.A. would have rioted. <laughs> So you end up with this mix. So what did you, as you mentioned, you didn't get Sparrow until right before the season. When you looked at the players that you had in camp, what did you think that the reasonable possibilities were with that group? I didn't really know, but let me tell you this. I never thought it was going to be as tough as it was. (laughs) I just didn't. I figured we'd struggle. You know, maybe we'd win, I don't know, 20 games or whatever. I never expected to lose the first 17. It was an eye-opening experience. It really was. But, you know, the first... I think in the first 11 games, I think we lost four by three points or less, if I remember correctly. So when you do finally get that first victory, it took a while. Eric Reed was telling us that all of a sudden there was some national coverage of you know the losing streak to start the season. Can you sort of relive that first win of your uh, Heat coaching tenure? I still see that ball hanging on the rim. <laughs> and thankfully, that ball still didn't go in. We got the stop and we got the win, but... You know, the, uh, we lost opening night, and then the next night, we had a back-to-back. We had to play Dallas and Dallas the next night, and um, that was a very good Dallas team. They had been in the Western Conference Finals the year before. They lost to the Lakers, I think, in six or seven games, if I remember correctly. And we went into Dallas, and uh, with 30 seconds to go, we were down two with the ball. For some reason, we played Dallas six times that year, because I don't know if you guys remember, but they put us in the Western Conference. What? And we were in the Midwest Division. So we played the teams on the West Coast four times. We played the teams in the Midwest Division six times. And we played the teams in the East two times. And what they did was they rotated each team that came in. Like the next year, Charlotte went into the Western Conference. And the first year, Orlando came in. Or second year, they went into the Western Conference. Because there were three teams in the East and one team in the West of the four expansion teams. So to try and even it out, they kept rotating who would, you know, which team would go to the Western Conference. Because you couldn't have all the expansion teams in the East, you know, just wouldn't have been fair. But for some, whatever reason, we played really well against Dallas all six games. I know we won one. Maybe we won two. I'm not sure. But we gave them all they could handle. But that was the second game of the year, second game of the franchise. And then we had a bunch that we lost. And then we had a week where we had three home games. I'll never forget this. I think they, one was against Portland, I think. One was against San Antonio and I can't remember what the other team is, and we lost all three games by two or one. How's this for a stat? Over the three games, the free throw attempts, totals for the three games, our opponent shot 93, we shot 31, and we lost by two and one. You're still trying to get that so fine. So someone huh? was trying to convince me <laughs> that officials didn't think, you know, it didn't matter who was on the court. They didn't see names or numbers. They just saw players. If someone was going to try and convince me that that was true, they would have an awfully hard time. I think that stuck with me for a long, long time. 
It's only been um, 30 years, Ron. I mean, I don't know if they can still issue you a fine 30 years after the fact. It's a different commissioner now. So. They, would, they would like to. <laughs> they would like to. <laughs> right. But, uh, and then anyhow, so the losing streak started, kept going. And then I remember we were somewhere on a road, and, um, I think it was in Chicago. I came out of the locker room, and all of a sudden, there was like about 20 reporters. And I'm looking around, and I'm going, I said, fellas, I don't work for the Detroit Pistons anymore, and this is not the playoffs. What are you all doing here? Well, we had become a national story because we are well on our way to setting a new record for consecutive losses at the beginning of the season. So, you know, we were the butt of a lot of jokes. I think uh, Letterman or somebody else, whoever it was, I think they, after we won the first game, mentioned that if we won again, they were going to have us all drug tested or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> and um, But... The first win was the Clippers out in L.A. And my wife likes to tell the story. The phone started ringing off the hook at 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> and the Clippers, how about this for an oddity? We played the three years I coached the Heat, we played the Clippers eight times. For the first year because you know, we were in the West and twice each year after that. And the only time we ever lost to them was opening night in Miami. We beat them seven straight times. That's the only team as coach of the Heat that I had a winning record against. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, okay, so I've looked up the numbers, Ronnie, and I'm totally with you in terms of your complaints. So it was a three-game run. It was San Antonio, Portland, and Sacramento. You lost okay. by four, three, and two. And the free throws, 30 for San Antonio, 44 for Portland, and 47 for Sacramento. I'm with you 30 years later. That is egregious. It was comical. It almost was. I mean, it wasn't right. It just wasn't right. And part of the problem is officials being human, they read the papers, they see TV. This team is no good. Well, they can't do that. You don't get a 50-50 call. If it's 50-50, you will not get the call. Now, is it different today? Well, you know, you can make an argument one way or the other. All right. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Ron Rothstein in a moment. All right, Chris, one of the things that we're doing on our Twitter account now at Five Reason Sports is we're holding contests. So we actually held a contest based on one of our recent episodes about the Marlins with Billy Gill of the Levitard Show, where I asked a question, which was tied to the episode. You know, how would, would the Marlins win your love back? How would they win your affection back? Because obviously they've they've played with emotions in this town for so long and Billy Gill among them. And so we put out the question and, and looked for the best answers. And then we put the best answers on a poll. And the winning response came from at Bardicus Rex. What he suggested, Chris, was that the Marlins make Billy Gill the Marlins man. Because there is no Marlins man now, right? Because Marlins man bolted because Derek Jeter wouldn't let him ride around on a car or something along those lines. And I, I, it was something to do with as well. He wanted to pay for like three years worth of season tickets at the current rate. And Derek Jeter wasn't having it. Correct. And then Marlins man ended up traveling to the British Virgin Islands to figure out if the Marlins really were registered there. So this has become a whole scandal. But it was a good answer by Bardicus Rex. And what he got for winning the contest, he won the poll going away, was he gets to promote his business on our podcast, which is a pretty cool thing because uh, Space Wolf, we work with Space Wolf. You should check them out at ad Space Wolf, two Fs at the end, or spacewolf.com. And what we offered was a free sponsorship 
of our show and to promote your business. And it just turns out this is a pretty cool business and I think I'm actually gonna order from them. So let me tell you a little about them. Our sponsor today is Orange Creek Farms. They're the winner of the Space Wolf Twitter poll. Say that three times fast. If you like meat, you're gonna wanna order this now. All their meat is premium, hormone-free, and antibiotics-free and naturally raised in the heart of farm country, which of course, Chris, is Iowa. I mean, again, how did they reach out to us from Iowa? Because a lot of people follow us at Five Reasons Sports. I mean, we are known as Sports by Miami for Miami, but we're also for Iowa. So it's just, we're, <laughs> we're nationwide. We, I we're love nationwide. This. It, it spreads behind our borders. I love this ad. Go on. It's a great ad. You can get their Berkshire pork cuts, such as thick cut pork chops and gourmet brats, or their Angus beef cuts, such as bone-in ribeyes and filet mignon. Insanely delicious looking 12 ounce New York strip, starting at 10 bucks. You can get New York strip out of Iowa. It's great. Great country we have delightful. here. It really is good. Get 10% off using the discount code Miami at checkout at orangecreekfarms.com. So go to orangecreekfarms.com right now. Check it out. They have, I mean, a ton of stuff on there. I'm actually probably going to order tonight. Tell your friends, use the discount code Miami, and you get 10% off. And the pricing, I looked at it, Chris, it's not that bad to, to begin with. So you get 10% off. It's a pretty good deal. So we're going to run more of these contests. We thank Space Wolf for doing this. And again, check them out, spacewolf2fs at the end.com. They're working with all of our podcasts, and they're doing a great job. So that's our sponsor for today. Let's get to the next part of this, uh, Ron, and hopefully, again, you won't get fined for all of that. And there was no last two-minute report at that time either, so you couldn't even go back and see what the officials missed and and be able to say, oh, I was right, even though they don't change anything anyway. I wanted to get to some of the players that you worked with. Uh, You've touched on a couple of them here, but some of the players that you worked with over those first three years, because, again, for people of Chris's generation, they didn't see these guys play live. I remember making sure I was at a TV set for your first game in 1988 so I'm old enough you know to be part of that era that I remember a lot of these guys but as you mentioned a lot of the guys that you brought in had big college reputations like people knew and that was at a time too where guys played three or four years in college so the average fan knew who Ronnie Cycli was knew who Sherman Douglas was knew who Glenn Rice was knew who Willie Burton was any of those guys whereas now when someone's drafted it's like okay I saw that guy play twice in college and then and then he left for the pros so I want to sort of address some of these guys individually to start with Ronnie who again was the Heat's first ever draft pick and, and came in with the big reputation your time working with him how close did he get during that period of time to the player that you envisioned that he could be if you remember, Ethan, he did not have a very good rookie year. But in year two, he was most improved player. He won the most improved player award. Ronnie took to the off-season program that we, we put him through after season one. He worked extremely hard, and he developed into a very good NBA player. And he had a great year in year two, again, winning the most improved player award. Unfortunately, in year three, he got hurt, and he missed it. He hurt his knee, and he missed, I want to say, close to half the season. And um, that was a setback for us. But from year four on, you saw steady development, and he became a very good NBA center. Not quite as good as he thought he was, I don't think. <laughs> but I love Ronnie. Great guy. <laughs> and when he came out of Syracuse, believe me when I tell you this, there weren't too many people that were less prepared to play in the NBA than Ronnie Stikley. He had no clue. And actually, near the end of his rookie year, I benched him, and there was a method to my madness. He needed to understand how much work he was going to have to put in that summer to become the player that he thought he was or wanted to be because he really had poor practice habits, didn't have good work. He, I mean, he had great success in college, but 
this is another animal. And um, he had a couple of good games as a rookie, but he was really, really unprepared. But he really did a great job. Bill Ferran turned him into a physical specimen worthy of an NBA center. He put on 20 pounds of muscle. His vertical went up three inches. He got his body ready to compete in the NBA. And Dave Wall, who was one of my assistants, along with Tony Friantino, David worked with him extensively in the offseason um, on his low post game and his game in general. And it all, take, it all came together. And, and he, was, he had a great second year. So you mentioned, Ron, laying the foundations, right, and the method to your madness. What for you were kind of the most important things that you had to get done in the early years of the Heat for, so that a foundation could exist for, you to, for you know, the next coach to go make the playoffs in year four? What were some of the most important things that you felt you had to do or the work that you had to do? Well, I thought that it was important that the players understood every day we stepped on the floor for practice, we needed to get better because we weren't good enough. And they had to understand what it was to be a professional and how to handle their, their life, very different than college, how to handle their off-the-court life, how to deal with the rigors of 82 games, the travel. You know, there were no, the only team in the league that had its own plane back then in our first year was the team that I left, the Pistons. And we had gotten the plane the year before. Everybody was flying commercial. And um, you would play three college seasons in one NBA season. And there was the, you know, the proverbial rookies will hit the wall at around game 50 or something like that. And um, so it was the daily grind, really, to try and teach them how to be professionals, what this game was all about, how to play this game professionally, how to prepare, how to take care of yourself, and um, how to deal with the frustrations of losing. And many of them had come from programs where most of them, whoever they are, they come to the NBA, they most of these guys have been winners and all of a sudden they're not winning a whole lot. And many nights they're getting pounded. It was too many young players, not enough talent. Some people tell you the coaching stunk, whatever, but it was a combination of a lot of things. And, but I take a lot of pride in the fact that every year of the first three years that we got better after the all-star break, because what we were trying to do finally was starting to take hold. And, I also take pride in the fact that none of those teams ever let go of the rope. You know, they just kept plugging and plugging and plugging. We played hard all the time. And um, I think a lot of the players didn't quite understand back then. But if you ask them today, they understand now. All right. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Ron Rothstein in a moment. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Ricardo Navas, and unfortunately, the Heat have been eliminated from the playoffs because the Sixers and the referees are clearly cheating. Um, jokes aside, we're still going to be going strong. Every Monday, look for new episodes of the Heat Beat Podcast. We're going to be going into the Heat's future, past, and present, as well as going around the league, and we're going to be guest-heavy throughout this postseason run. So check us out at MIA Heat Beat on Twitter and Miami Heat Beat on Facebook so we can keep you posted on what's to come I want to get to your your second year so you get through the first year you, know, you win the 15 games you, you end up with the fourth pick in the draft and again I'm going, I'm going back through these names and uh, because again I used to follow college basketball a lot more closely than I do these days I think a lot of people did and there were big names at the, at the top of that particular draft and Purvis Ellison goes first Danny Ferry goes second Sean Elliott goes third how much of a say did you have in the selection of, of Glenn Rice at number four overall? Well, I had a lot of say 
I didn't have the final decision. That final decision belonged to Billy Cunningham. But I was very involved in the process, the draft process, all the interviews, the workouts. And, you know, we were done April 15th. We weren't going to the playoffs. So a big part of my job was to help get involved in the draft and find out who these kids were and, uh, you know, help us make a decision. And that was an interesting draft in this regard. It panned out there was a big four. We never got real lucky in the lottery, as you know. We had the worst record, but we didn't have the number one pick. And the worst pick we could have had was four, and that's what we got. We didn't get one, two, or three. We got four. Okay, we couldn't get any worse. But we lucked out in, the, in this regard, and that the way that draft worked out was there was a top four. And a lot of people had it in different orders. There was no clear-cut number one. As a matter of fact, Purvis Ellison, who was the number one pick, surprised a lot of people. A lot of people thought Danny Ferry would be the number one pick. And then there were people who said, no, it should be Sean Elliott. And there were people who said, no, it should be Glenn Rice. So what basically happened was we sat back. I mean, we did all our homework. We did all our work. We were prepared for whatever, trades or whatever. But we just sat back and, okay, whoever falls to four, that's who we're taking. Because there was a clear-cut drop-off after four. So Glenn Rice fell to us. Worked out pretty well. You bring him into camp. How much did that change the outlook going forward? I mean, did you think you had a core piece that you could build around? Yes, absolutely. Matter of fact, as a rookie, I think he had more long twos than anybody I ever saw in my life. And I knew that it was just a matter of time that he would become a really, really good three-point shooter. But, you know, we never pushed it. I just wanted him to be comfortable. And Glenn came in, actually, he came in overweight. There had been a contract dispute, and he went back to Michigan, and he didn't do anything, and he came in overweight. And then he tried to catch up and he sprained his ankle. So the beginning was a little bit rocky. But um, overall, he had a very, very solid rookie year. And then in the offseason, heading into year two, he came in and he fractured his thumb. And uh, Tony Ferentino did a lot of work with Glenn. And uh, they worked a lot on his left hand. And he was never considered a great off-the-dribble guy. But as I told Glenn, I said, listen, you don't have to be. All you have to be is a two-dribble guy because you're so dangerous with your shot people are going to fly at you and all you got to do is show it and go one or two dribbles and you get whatever you want and you know as his career developed he became pretty adapted that also how disappointing was it at that point because as you said you built the foundation to that stage you know you felt like you had sort of a core group of young players that you could move forward with you were going to be getting another high pick the next year where, as we talked about, ultimately the team took Steve Smith, who, who ended up becoming a foundational player you know, for, for that period of time for the franchise. How disappointing was it not to be able to continue with that group and, and see where it went? And is that something all these years later that you still think about? No, I don't think about it. It was disappointing. Let me put it this way. I had a really good feel that we were getting better. But in all honesty, I wasn't positive because there was this little nagging thing in the back of my mind you know, nobody really took us seriously. So they get into the game and all of a sudden they go, oh, we're in a dogfight now. But the preparation wasn't there like the Lakers were playing the Celtics kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? So I wasn't quite sure. Yes, I wanted to come back. I saw things starting to come together. I wanted to finish the job that I had started. I thought that I had earned that opportunity. But on the other hand, I was really tired. Mm-hmm. Try coaching an NBA season and win 15, 18, and 24 in three straight years. Right. It's hard, man. It's really, really hard. And not too many people know this or remember, but I had never missed 
in all my years as a coach up to that point in time, I had only missed one game when I was a high school coach and I had the flu and 104 fever or whatever it was. But I had never missed a game in the NBA. And during that third year, we had just finished our first ever 500 month. We were playing well. And all of a sudden, I got sick. No one could figure out what it was. They put me through all kinds of tests, had me on a heart monitor. I couldn't get out of bed for a week. I had absolutely no strength. I had barely was able to make it to the bathroom, and nobody knew what it was. I'll tell you what it was. <laughs> it was stress. Mm-hmm. It was wear and take. You know what Ty Lue's going through, and they said, they talk about, they did all kinds of tests, and they couldn't find anything? I know what it is. And he's winning 60 games a year. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Look, look how old that guy's gotten to look in a couple of years right. compared to what he was when he started. The job is the job will just gobble you up if you let it. And most of us do because that's who we are. And um, so because of that, I kept saying to myself, you know, I don't know if I can really handle this if we come back next year and we're really not that much better. I don't know what I would have done, to tell you the truth. So there was that side. But, yes, there was disappointment that I couldn't come back, you know, to finish the job that I had started. Sorry, so you're in the, you're in the wilderness for a little while in terms of, uh, like you mentioned, you said it couldn't have worked out any better. You go to Cleveland as an assistant. Let's pass over those years here a little bit because I want to get you back to Miami. So in, I guess it was 2000 that uh, it's announced that the Heat are basically going to be sponsoring or, or behind a new WNBA team in Miami called the soul. How did that come about? Did Pat reach out to you? Was that, how did it come about that they brought you back to the organization to coach the soul? (laughs) It's a funny story. Um, yeah, Pat called me. I hadn't talked to Pat on the phone for, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years that, you know, competed against him when I was with Fratello in Cleveland and he and Mike were good friends. And I, you know, I knew Pat through competition. We weren't friends or anything, but you know, we would talk. And uh, actually, when Pat went to New York, when, when the Heat let me go, he and I had a conversation about me going to New York with him doing something. There was no coaching position, but I had already committed to go back to Detroit. And now, eight years later, all of a sudden, my wife and I had just got, come back from Israel. We had gotten fired in Cleveland after six years that in June of 99. And um, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, but I had a year to go on my contract, so I didn't feel any real pressure. So I got a call from the coaches association what I want to do a clinic for the Israeli coaches association and I had never been to Israel before and I said yeah sure so we went and we did it I did it and we had a great trip and then I came back and I was back in Miami I'm sorry I was back in Cleveland maybe two or three this show is sponsored by BetterHelp what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day go for a run take a nap maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game I've got a better idea A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, 
Wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill days. And um, I was out one morning, my wife called me and said, you just got a call from Pat Riley, he wants you to call him. And here's the funny part. The funny part, while I was over in Israel, I saw a four-team tournament, including Maccabi Tel Aviv. Uh, they had like a preseason tournament, and we went to the games one night. And that was the year the Heat had an exhibition game in Israel, if you remember that. But what happened was, so I knew they had an exhibition game, and they were going over. So my wife says to me, Pat Riley called, he wants you to want you to give him a call back. And I said to myself, Riley, he's unbelievable. He just found out that I was over in Israel. Maybe I could give him a scattering report on Maccabi Tel Aviv. That's, that's what went through my mind. Okay. I think that's all my call back. And I go, I said something to Pat. I said, Pat, listen, I don't remember much about Maccabi Tel Aviv. He said, no, no, that's not why I'm calling. <laughs> he's such a competitor. And he and he get the scouting report on Maccabi Tel Aviv. <laughs> and then uh, he mentioned that uh, the reason he called was that uh, the Heat was going to put a team in the WNBA and that uh, he knew that when I was in Cleveland, that Cleveland had a team and he had heard maybe from Tony about, uh, you know, I had uh, gone to practices and watch games and, you know, I really enjoyed watching them and that I had some familiarity with the WNBA and he knew I was, you know, was out of a job. I actually... I had an offer that summer to go to Chicago as an assistant, and eventually I turned that offer down because I just didn't think it was the right situation. And um, so Pat mentioned it to me, and he asked me if I'd be interested in being the head coach and general manager. And I said, yeah, I think so. We started talking, and then eventually I came down and went through the interview process and met Kim Stone, who was my director of operations. And uh, then we decided, yeah, I wanted to – this is what I wanted to do. Came back to Miami in, uh, in late fall of 99 to start the process of putting another expansion team in, into professional basketball in the same city. Who else could be dumb enough to do that? <laughs> I, I wonder if anyone but else has done totally that in history of the NBA. Oh, you know, I'm definitely a trivia question in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, but... It was very, very different, the process, and it was much more expansion-friendly in terms of what you could do and players that were made available to you. And uh, I was also the GM. So I was responsible for everything that went on with the Miami Soul. And and Pat gave me that freedom, and Randy gave me that freedom. And uh, it was a great, great experience. I absolutely loved it. 
and you had some success. I have no you, desire to come back to the NBA. And, and I'm looking at you know the numbers. I was trying to remember this. Um, I mean, you guys did, as you mentioned, it was more expansion friendly. But that second season, uh, you guys were 13 and 19 your first year, but you went 20 and 12 the second year and made it to the playoffs. So you did have some success with that group. I mean, as you mentioned, you loved it. Did, did you think it was going to last longer than it did? Because it went it went for three seasons. Uh, what? How sustainable did you think it was when you got started in it? You know, I didn't really know, Ethan. It was more day-to-day, year-to-year kind of thing. I knew the league was struggling. I knew we were lo- losing money. The big problem was the Heat was really losing a lot of money back then. Things weren't going well for the Heat. And I think if things had been going well from the Heat, I think there's a good chance we would have kept the franchise. But the long and short of it is, yes, we were 20-12 and 12 in the second year. Third year, one of our big post players, Elena Baranova, stayed to practice with the Russian team. She didn't come back. Ruth Riley, who we had drafted after winning the national championship the year before, and helped us to that 20. Those two were like our twin towers, and Ruth got hurt and missed half the season. We came back and we, we missed the playoffs by one game in year three. But we were poised, believe me when I tell you this, we were ready to win the championship. We had two of the first eight picks coming up. Ruth was coming back healthy. There was a good chance that Baranova was coming back. We had made some trades. We were going to go back and build on that 20-12 and 12 season the second year. No other expansion team got the double figures. We had no one got the double figures in year one. And we won... We actually won more than I, I really wanted to. But we almost, we almost made the playoffs the first year. We missed by one game. And, I mean, there's a bunch of stories that go along with that that are really pretty funny. But uh, when the Heat gave the franchise back to the NBA, and that's what happened. You would run the franchise for the league. It was very different, the uh, model. And um, we were poised to contend for the championship. So what happened, our team was dispersed. Well, Ruth Riley got picked by Detroit. And then they got one of our draft picks, who that would have been us, and that draft pick turned out to be Cheryl Ford, Carl Malone's daughter. They won back-to-back championships. That was us. Plus, we had another pick in the lottery, and like I said, we had made a couple of trades. We had really made ourselves stronger. We were ready to win the championship, and if not, at least really compete, get past that first round, but wasn't meant to be. So... Uh, I was out of a job again. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Ron Rothstein in a moment. Hello, this is Chris Joseph, co-host of The Bulls Cast. Some of you might have heard our earlier promos on this podcast and wondered, what in the holy shit fuck is Bulls Cast thing all about? Well, Bulls Cast is a comedy podcast about Miami sports, culture, and politics, and sex, and food. You know, all the shit that matters to those of us who call the 305 home. We also throw in parody songs and comedy sketches and invite the occasional cool-ass guests and my co-host Slim and I do all of this while completely baked out of our gourds. So, if you love Miami sports, but you're also into laughing and living your fullest life in this beautiful city we call our home, then please download BallsCast wherever you consume your podcasts. Then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the crazy. Now, listen to some fart noises. So you end up then, as you said, you were okay with never coming back to the NBA, but then you get the opportunity to to join the staff of the Heat as an assistant. And you know, I wanted to go well before that. I did that, Ethan. Okay. Oh yeah, that's right. You went to um, you went to Indiana first. That's right. And that was if you go back and look that year, I was in Indiana. We had the best record in the league, and 
We lost to the Pistons in the Eastern Finals because Jermaine O'Neal and Jamal Tinsley went down in the Eastern Finals. And then Detroit beat L.A. in the Finals. If we didn't get hurt, we were winning a championship that year. That was the Ron Artest's best year. He was Defensive Player of the Year. That was a really – that was Dwayne's rookie year. Do you remember the first round, the second round of the playoffs? They gave us a hard time. We were also having a hard time internally with our test. Yeah, I can imagine. And that was also the series. People remember that not only for the way Dwayne played in it overall, but the dunk on Jermaine O'Neal. I think a lot of people remember that from that particular series. So you're, you're with the Pacers again for that one year, 2003-2004. You come back to the Heat in 2004. Was that Pat who brought you back? Was that Stan who brought you in? How, how did that take place that you end up with the Heat back in 2004? Well, essentially, basically, it was Pat. Pat brought me back, and um, Stan called me and uh, asked me to come in so we could talk. We sat down, and we hashed some things out, and it was great. I, I think the year and 20 games that uh, Stan and I worked together, I thought um, we had a great relationship, and uh, things worked really, really well. And Pat's concern back then was there wasn't a lot of – there wasn't a veteran older guy who had been through the wars on that coaching staff. And that was a very, very good coaching staff. And um, unfortunately for Keith, he's the guy that had to go behind the bench. But Keith has always, he's always told me that, you know, coach, you gave me my chance. And um, so we've always, we've had this connection for a long, long time. And uh, he handled it like a real pro. And the other guys on that staff were Bob McAdoo and and Spo. And um, things just clicked. A great group of guys. And I told Stan, I said, look, the only reason I'm coming back here is my job is to help you. I know how hard this job is. And whatever I can do to help you be a better coach, you tell me and I will do it. And that's how it worked. And then the coaching change in the 2005-2006 season. I know that team, we talked to Eric a little bit about this. There's a lot of belief, and I believe this too. I know Eric believes it, that that team probably goes to the finals in 2005 if not for Dwayne getting injured in what was the game five of the series against the Pistons and then missing game six and not really being right in game seven. So clearly you guys were, were close. Let me interrupt you for a second mm-hmm. from a very personal standpoint. That's two straight years. I lost to the Pistons because the team I was with got hurt. <laughs> I was sick and tired of losing to those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so when we beat them the next year, man, was I happy. <laughs> <laughs> So that season, that 2005-2006 season, because I, I, there was, look, a lot of turmoil, obviously, for a team that had high expectations, you know, obviously with, with Pat stepping in and, and replacing Stan halfway through that year. Shaq missed a lot of time. There were a lot of personalities on that team that we in the media didn't know if those personalities would all fit after the trades that Pat made that offseason, bringing in Antoine Walker and Jason Williams and James Posey. Did you think that group was championship worthy that 2005, 2006 group. And, and how did you experience the transition at the top in terms of moving, you know, from Stan to Pat and kind of the run that you guys made towards the end of that season? A couple of things. I've said this before and I really believe it. I don't think there is a guy, and this is nothing against Stan because I think Stan is terrific. I think Stan's a great coach, but Pat had so much invested in that team. And this is why I say this. Because of all that he had invested in that team, I don't think there's another guy out there in the world that could have done a better coaching job than Pat did that year. 
and it had nothing to do with X's and O's. So what did he do? He, he believed in those guys. He just believed in those guys where, you know, not everybody else on that staff believed in those guys the way he did. Listen, he's the guy who brought them there. And your reputation is on the line. And, you know, you're the guy who, who put this team together. And obviously early in the year, I mean, Shaq had gotten hurt again and things were not going well. I think when Stan left, I think we were 500. And that season was no magic carpet ride. And there were a lot of ups and downs. There was a lot of, <laughs> there was some crazy things that happened that year, really. And um, the turning point came, I think it was in February. And in Dallas, they beat us by 40. Do you remember that? That night in the locker room after that game is when things changed. And from that point on, we became a team that if things kept trending in the right direction, we were going to be a factor. We were going to be because we still had, okay, we still had Dwayne Wayne and Shaquille O'Neal. And we had Zoe. I mean, we had, we had a roster of talented players. And, you know, Pat's experience in dealing with multiple personalities like he did in the years with the Lakers. Everybody thinks that was showtime, it was easy and everything. No, buddy. No, it wasn't. They were very talented, but it's not always easy to coach talented players. I want to fast forward a little bit because you mentioned that that team had some challenges along the way. I remember vividly being in Chicago during that first round series when, mm -hmm. uh, when the Bulls tied that, a young Bulls team tied that thing up 2 2. And I remember uh, things looked like they were coming apart. Wade, I remember Gary and, and Dwayne yelling at each other on the court where we all noticed that. And then that run that the team got on after that, the way that Shaq played in that series following that, but also the run that they got on. And again, you mentioned beating Detroit, the game that Jason Williams had against Detroit, and then going through the finals and, and what Dwayne accomplished. For you personally, what did all of that mean? Because you mentioned you didn't have a chance to kind of finish the job with the expansion team and see what you had built come to fruition. Then sort of the same thing happens with the soul. You're in a situation when you're an assistant with Indiana and you have injuries and you can't get past Detroit at that point. How did you experience winning that championship. What were the thoughts that went through your mind in Dallas when you guys won? I was numb. <laughs> I really was. The game ended and I was in sort of, you know how normally you jump in the air and you're, you're excited and everything. I was like sort of stunned. It was a strange reaction. I never would have expected I would have reacted like that. And it was almost like, I don't believe it. This actually happened. <laughs> and it wasn't, I don't know how to, I don't know really had to put this, but it wasn't really, it was more about, I was just glad to be part of a team that finally won the whole thing. Because I had been so close a number of times, going back to the 88 finals and, and when I was with the Pistons against Pat's Lakers. And the two years before that, one with Indiana, one with the Heat against Detroit. And the year before we, we were in the finals in 88, when I was with the Pistons the year before in the Eastern finals against the Celtics and something always happened that kept us from winning. And finally I was part of the team that won. Can you kind of run through Ron sort of that game? So it was game three, that fourth quarter, you're down double digits in the fourth quarter to Dallas in, in those, uh, in those finals. What were sort of the, the, the team talks like in that, in those final huddles before you guys went on that run and then obviously go on to win the rest of that series. Do you have any, any particular stories that you remember from those huddles or even in sort of the talking about the game before game three, how you guys were going to mount this comeback? 
There's a couple of interesting things. Um, in that series, you go to Dallas for game one. We think we're ready, and they beat us pretty handily. So we watch the film and get ready for game two, and we're feeling good that you know we can make the corrections we need to, and we got a good shot to win game two, and they beat us even worse. So we go into the locker room after game two, and everybody's really down. And I'm saying to myself, oh, boy, I'm not sure we have any answers. And so everybody, we're in the locker room, and all of a sudden Pat walks in, and he walks up to the board, and he says, all right, everybody, I, said, I want everybody's attention. Everybody, stop what you're doing. No, no, don't cut your tape off. Look up here. Look at me. I want all eyes on me. And he goes to the grease board, and I'm standing in the back of the locker room. And he goes to the grease board, and he writes on the board, 6-20-06, and he underlines it. <laughs> I'm standing in the back there, and I'm looking at the board, and I'm saying to myself, what's he doing now? Because <laughs> you never knew what Pat was going to do. Pat <laughs> came up with some pretty wild stuff, and uh, I'm saying, what's he doing now? And he says, okay, he says, everybody look up here. He said, see this, 6-20-06. He says, that's 10 days from now. He says, right here in this locker room, at the end of game six, we will celebrate winning the NBA championship. And anybody who doesn't believe that, you need to get the bleep out of here now. Well, I was ready to walk out the door. I was the God. There's dead silence, and I'm saying, oh, my God. I'm, I'm starting to put things together. I'm going, that means we've got to win four straight. <laughs> we can't win one. I'm talking to myself. <laughs> so, anyhow, now fast forward, game three, six and a half minutes left to go, down 13, whatever. And in that timeout, one of the great timeouts ever. And it had nothing to do with X's and O's. He just said to them, your season is on the line. Are you going to let it slip away? Something to that effect. And that's when Dwayne said, no way, ain't no bleeping way I'm going out like that. And then he ran off 17 straight points and put together four of the greatest performances in NBA history that people forget about. And 6-20-06, we won in Dallas. <laughs> so when you put all that together, I'm telling you, when it finally all came together, and Dwayne threw the ball up in the air. You remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like three seconds to go. He had the ball, and he just threw it straight up in the air. And my wife, I remember her telling me, she said, I screamed, what is he doing? And then she realized the clock is running out. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody exploded. I was stunned. I didn't know what to do. And I remember walking inside, finally sitting down and saying to myself, so this is what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> it was surreal. That's awesome. We asked Eric this question, too. Uh, the, the other thing that sticks out from that whole run is is the whole 15-strong thing. We kind of found out as reporters what was in the bowl after there was champagne soaked all over them in the, in the post-game locker room, and Jason Williams was screaming to the media, I'm not a cancer, and all the stuff that was going on in that, that <laughs> locker room after the fact. Uh, and Antoine was, Antoine was promising to drink until training camp. I mean, it was an interesting locker room. but we, hey, he, we, did. <laughs> he did. He did. He did. He did. I, he did. He was, a man, he was a man of his word. Uh, that was one of the more interesting post-game lockers I think I've ever been in. But how did Pat introduce the whole 15 strong thing with the team? Did he do that in front of the coaches? Was that, I mean, uh, how did that? No, 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 no. Pat was great at surprising the coaches also. <laughs> he would do He would do stuff. We'd sit there, look at one another. He'd go, he just do that? <laughs> but um, if I remember correctly, we're in the locker room one night for a game, 
And next thing you know, the door opens. And here comes Shaq with a wheelbarrow. <laughs> and he wheels the wheelbarrow into the locker room. And he had all the 15 strong cards in the wheelbarrow and dumped them on the floor in the middle of the locker room. Everybody's looking at one was like, what is this? And they were the cards. That's how we introduced the 15 strong to the team. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Pat Riley, <laughs> Pat Riley had Shaq use a wheelbarrow and dump yeah. him in the locker room. That was his way of introducing it to the team. I think so. I think that's, that's what incredible. I remember. Incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody had no idea what these cards were. And then we started getting cards. He'd come in with cards that would have the player and the trophy on the front and a picture of the player and his family on the back. I mean, he he played that thing up. Then when we got into you get a kick out you get a kick out of this one. When we got into the playoffs and we're preparing to play, you know, Dallas, and then you know we had a scout team that they were in the Dallas stuff. You remember Earl Barron? I do. Well, Earl was Dirk Nowitzki. So every time in practice they'd run their plays, Earl would never miss a shot. He actually thought he was Dirk Nowitzki. So he played like him. He would never miss a shot. How come you didn't he throw him in the so game good, then? The guy started calling him Dark Nowitzki. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. So then you guys win the championship 2006. You, you finally sort of get to that mountain. You know, the team goes through a transition. A really rough year um, in 2007-2008 with the 15-win season, which tied your guys' record from the inaugural year. Dwayne has two great years. And then, of course, in 2010, LeBron and Chris Bosh decide to come to Miami. We asked Eric Reed this question, and he gave us a pretty interesting answer. Uh, he, he said he found out LeBron was coming while he was watching TV in his bedroom, and Eric told us it was the happiest he's ever been in his bedroom. So I don't know if you want to get quite... <laughs> I don't know if you want to get quite that specific, but how did you experience LeBron's decision? And I mean, did you realize at that time how much everything was going to change? You knew things were going to change, but you didn't know how much you couldn't. I mean, at least I couldn't, I didn't, but I knew that, uh, I knew that we had put together a real, really talented team, a team that could contend for a championship, you know, night in and night out every year. There was no question in my mind. The question was, how is this all going to come together? And as you, you saw, it took some time. But there's a little known fact. I'm not sure that most people remember this. You know, they, they talk about the first year we were 9 and 8, and there was the shoulder bumping incident with Spo and, and, and LeBron, and then the players only meeting, you know, and again, after, you know, getting tattooed by Dallas. But what happened was, that's the, and then we won 22 out of the next 23, and that got us going, of course. But prior to that, we were eight and four. We weren't nine and eight. We were eight and four. And we were playing in Memphis. And UD tore up his foot. And back then, UD was an important part of our team. And um, he went down. We missed him for almost most of the season, most of the rest of the season. And when he went down is when we lost four in a row. So it took us a little time. But nobody talked about that. You know, it was all about the big three, and it wasn't working, and Spoke couldn't coach the team. But nobody said a word about one of our glue guys went down. So we were going through the process of making that adjustment. And as soon as, you know, it took a few games and all that noise, but then right after that, I mean, it was an incredible run for four years, no matter how you look at it. So we, we look back on, on those years and on that drama as sort of being the the height of, you know, pressure that's ever existed on an NBA franchise. Do you have a story of 
what it was like at sort of the peak of that cauldron and really sort of be able to sort of articulate just how insane the atmosphere around that team was? Well, the, the thing that jumps out is the night we went back to Cleveland the first time. I have never seen anything like that. You know, I coached for 50 years. I've been involved in the NBA for over 35 years. I was a high school coach for 19 years in some pretty intense rivalry games. I have never seen people react the way they did when we went back to Cleveland that night in regard to LeBron. It was frightening. It was scary. It was, it was surreal. People just weren't rational. There was one guy, he was sitting about, well, it was beyond eight rows behind our bench. So they would let people come down. They'd stop them at the eight-row mark. He was one, and there was a woman who sat behind our bench. I knew those people from my days in Cleveland. I knew him. I knew her. That woman and that fan from the higher up, I thought the two of them were going to break blood vessels and collapse. They were screaming and yelling, and it was incessant. And they turned so – it was – Somebody do something. Call 911. Get, get these people some help. And then near the end of the game, I don't know if too much was ever made about this, but I'll tell you what. I, I remember a battery came flying out of the stands. It missed my head by a couple of feet and put an indentation in the floor. If that battery had hit somebody, that would have been a big problem. And that's when I knew we had to get the hell out of there. It was about 45 seconds left to go in the game. That was just never seen anything like that in my life. Hopefully I'll never see anything like that again, anywhere. I remember the battery, Ron, because I, I remember that the rumors of that had started to spread. A lot of us in the media had left the press area. The press area in Cleveland is is up in the stands, sort of towards the corner a little bit. You're not on the yeah. floor. And we had uh, we were all up there, but about, yeah, but I would say about halfway through the fourth quarter, because that game was also a blowout, and LeBron was playing. Yeah, killed him. Uh, killed him. Yeah. LeBron was playing at a really high level. And so things were going to get uglier. And I, I mentioned this on a previous pod. I had been up in Cleveland for a couple of days. So I had seen how the city was reacting to him and all the, the stuff that was going on and in the bars and everything that it was going to be extraordinarily ugly. And yeah, so we went down there, but yeah, we heard rumors of the, of the battery and everything else. And I, yeah, I, I'll never, ever forget that night. I want to move to one other thing with you here, Ron, and then we're going to let you go. As you look at the totality of it, of those four years, what do you think that that team, that group, should be remembered for? Well, it could be remembered for a couple of different things, but I think, I think it was the excitement that that group generated. I mean, they didn't call them the Heatles for nothing. It was a bit of a traveling circus. Part of it was because of the way the team came, it was, you know, came together with the LeBron's announcement and then that ceremony in Miami Arena with the three of them, with the smoke and not one, not two, not three, and all of those things, and we became the team that everybody loved to hate. And at the same time, we developed an incredible following around the country because, you know, people love winners. But probably more than anything else, um, the standard, the level of excellence that those guys played with, I think they were really, and I mean this sincerely, they were tremendously professional in their approach to their job and the game and the business and all of that stuff. And they were great entertainment. And when we were at the top of our game, and when I say that, I mean mostly defensively because we could generate so much offense off of it. And I guess I'm, I'm a bit prejudiced at that defensive side, as I've been accused of before. But um, we were really pleasant to watch. And to see, you know, greatness. LeBron is he's a signature player. Dwayne is a Hall of Fame player. Chris Bosh will probably be in the Hall of Fame. To see those guys, and then to see the way 
the other guys contributed. And, you know, UD used to make jokes about the big three and a little 12, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <clears throat> but those guys, those guys cared for one another. They played for one another. And Spo will never, ever get enough credit for the job he did coaching those, those four years. Yeah, I think that's a uh, that's a good way to close here. Um, Ron, thanks for taking the time uh, for doing this. I know Heat fans will really enjoy this, kind of going back through memory lane with you a little bit, particularly the, the newer Heat fans who, who may have sort of fell in love with the team during this era we're talking about and may not know as much about about some of the history. So we really appreciate you doing it. We are going to get you on Twitter at some point um, so we could tell everybody out there <laughs> who's listening to the podcast, we'll get you out there. I did not yell freeze it at any time during this pod, so I made it through. Um, we hope you enjoyed our Heat Stories episode with Ron Rothstein. Expect more of those in the library here in the next couple of months. We've got a bunch of people in mind. But we also have big news here about the network, the Five Reasons Sports Podcast Network. We have been going here for a little over three months. Uh, about a month and a half ago, we started adding other podcasts to the network. You can find Three Yards Per Carry, Ballscast, and also Miami Heat Beat on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We are now adding a fifth podcast to our network if you listen to us the other day, we dropped a little bit of this in a special episode. It was Chris Whittingham talking a little football, the other football, with our friend Simon Clancy from I like Three to Yards Per Carry. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> well, you know, I have a little. I have a little Spanish in my house too. That's right. So that's I, right. I, I'm I'm trying to branch out a little bit. But that was just a teaser. That was just a taste of what's coming. So Chris, why don't you talk a little bit about the announcement that we're making here on this Monday as we drop this episode? Yeah, we are starting a soccer football, football soccer. I'm actually, one of the things I actually want to start out is the vernacular that Americans use to talk about this sport because it has international sort of holdings, but also is kind of taken on this new form here in the United States. And I think the clash of cultures is interesting. So a new football soccer podcast, it's called Pitch Invasion. Obviously, I have tweeted a lot about pitches in the last year. It really all started with the Dolphins having a really poor home field after having a really gorgeous home field for a while and I would talk about pitches all the time and it would annoy everyone because I didn't call it a field and so that just kind of stuck with me and so I wanted to use the best pitch pun that I can find and it's actually a term in the soccer parlance which it means that, you know, it's basically like storming the field right so it is their version of storming the field they call it a pitch invasion so that's be the name of the podcast obviously the primary focus is Miami because we're a Miami based soccer network and with MLS Miami hopefully coming into existence in 2020. Obviously, with that coming up, and it would end up being less than two years, want to start to get geared up for that and covering the latest news with that team once the stadium gets put in place, once they have a name, once they have colors, once they get a manager, once they have players, then we can really start to get fired up about that. Obviously, the European game, we're launching ahead of the Champions League finals. So it'll be May 23rd is the launch date. And so we'll talk some Champions League. We'll talk some European soccer. I want to get to the entirety of MLS, obviously, because I think getting to know the league a bit before you come into the league is going to be important. And then we'll talk a lot about the World Cup coming up. We're going to have a lot of preview episodes. We have five preview episodes in the hopper. And then we'll get into a, basically every other day we'll be doing a podcast wrapping up the big games in the World Cup that starts June the 14th in Russia. We're really excited to start to cover that. So those will kind of be the main 
tentacles of the pod, and then we'll kind of move into the International Champions Cup, which has a big game here in Miami, or two big games, actually, with Bayern Munich taking on Man City, Real Madrid taking on Manchester United, so some local soccer there. And then we're into the European club season, so we're going to be covering soccer of all kinds, and we're really excited to get started. Again, launch date is May 23rd, which is a Wednesday. It'll be up on iTunes, Google Play, and we'll get those links to you probably the week before it launches. And then you can follow it on Twitter as well. It is at Pitch Invasion 5R, the number 5 so Pitch Invasion 5R is where you follow it on Twitter. Really excited to get started, Ethan. I, for me, this is really the culmination of a lot of interest in soccer that's kind of been held within, right? I kind of I talk mm-hmm. with my friends a lot about soccer, and they'll have the odd kind of World Cup or something where we'll talk about it on a local basis. But for the most part, I have not had an outlet to really talk about soccer, which is a sport I would say now I am most primarily interested in at this point in my life. So I'm really excited to finally have a venue for this, and I'm excited to get started. I think it's all because we wouldn't let you put it on this pod. So we had to create <laughs> yes, something we had to else. create a separate vehicle so that I wouldn't bother you with soccer talk. That is correct. Actually, a lot of people uh, downloaded the short that you put out with mm. Simon. So that did very well. So I do think that there's demand for this. I think it's, it's very exciting. Uh, we have some other concepts, too, that you should stick around for. We may have announcements in the next couple months about those. But uh, clearly going to put our energy behind this. I'm just curious how many times you're going to use the word parlance uh, during the <laughs> podcast. I'm sure I'm sure it will be a few. Uh, and again, that's a term that you can save for that pod. So so we'll do that over at Pitch Invasion. Uh, and the logo is pretty cool, too. Um, yeah, Adam Smoot, big ups to him. Did a brilliant job. Did, he did a very good job. So, uh, so we are five deep now. The Five Reasons Sports Podcast Network is five deep. And, and we do have some other concepts. Uh, we're not going to stay at five for too long so definitely check that out and again always check out three yards per carry balls cast and mia heat beat miami heat beat we're trying to cover you know sports from pretty much every angle in miami and uh and and beyond because obviously you're going to be doing a lot of national and international stuff for soccer but but soccer is huge in miami and and you know obviously the diversity in miami uh, lends itself to that so excited about it and again if you have suggestions please at five reasons sports we run polls there all day and download something called the live vote app um google play itunes uh you can download that for free we're going to start running contests over there as well so definitely get on that too and that's about all the news we have for you thanks again to ron rustin we'll talk to you soon say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.